welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. It's good being here on this Memorial Day weekend. We've lived in Hungary about 20 years, and during that time our kids grew up there, three of them, two of them are here, but I won't point them out because they'll be embarrassed. So, so during those 20 years, you know, you get school breaks and you go, where are we going to go for break? And if you figure that Vienna, Bratislava, just a couple hours away, there's a lot of neat places you can go to. So one particular break, we went to Schoprohn, Hungary. Has anyone ever heard of Schoprohn? Okay, well, you can ask my kids, or I'll tell you. Basically, Schoprohn is a city near the Austrian border, about 60,000 people. And if you're Austrian, it's a good place to go because you can buy everything on the cheap there. But if you're from Budapest, like we are, you go, why would you go there? And our friends asked us, so why, why did you go to Schoprohn? And there was one good reason. Our son Alex had done some research and found out they had a chocolate factory in Schoprohn. <laughs> You could get tours there, and you could taste the chocolate. And this was like world-class chocolate. This is like some of the best stuff we'd ever had. So that's why we went to Showprone to do a little taste testing. Now, I don't think Jesus ever ate chocolate. There's no record of it in the Bible. But he did go on trips. And we do have a record here in Mark 4 and 5 of him going on a trip where he also had a purpose, a very distinct purpose of why he was going someplace. Now, he starts up on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, and he goes across. But there's other places he could have gone. There's Bethsaida up here. There's Tiberias, a big city. And you would almost expect him to go there as opposed to the Decapolis, this mainly Gentile region, 10 cities that he's never been to. And he's never really had anything to do with Gentiles. But that's where he goes. Why does he make this trip? Well, we're going to talk about that this morning. And my big idea here is that when we grasp the extent of Jesus' power and mercy, uh, it helps us realize what his power can do to transform even the most hopeless person. We're going to see how God's power and mercy can, can transform even the most hopeless of people. So we're going to start out, describe the situation. There's going to be a display of power. People will react to that. And then there's going to be a proclamation of deeds and mercy. So let's describe what's going on here. So Jesus is in Capernaum. That's kind of his home base. He's there with the the disciples. He's been preaching, been telling some parables. There are lots of people, crowds following him around. So then he says in Mark 4.35, let's go over to the other side. So as they do, there's a story you're probably very well familiar with. A storm comes up. Water's coming into the boat. Jesus is in the stern of the boat, sleeping. His disciples wake him up and say, don't you care about us? We're perishing. And with three words, Jesus stills the storm. He says, peace, be still. And so his disciples, who've been with him for a while, they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They've seen Jesus' miracles, but they've never seen quite anything like this. So this is kind of the start. We're starting with this, but we're not done yet. So they go over to the other side. They go to the Decapolis, to the region of Gerasa. 
So first, Jesus is going to a Gentile area, something he hasn't done before. But not only that, he's going to to meet with a man who's ceremonially unclean. This man is living in caves or tombs. And Isaiah 65, 4 says this about people like that. He says, he who sits in tombs and eats pig's flesh is not to come near to God, for he is too holy. So the man's a Gentile. He's unclean. Not only that, he's been chained up numerous times, broken the chains. No one can control him. He runs around night and day screaming. He's gashing himself with rocks. And if you remember the story of Elijah when he confronted the four prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, you know, they're trying to to have the fire devoured by their God. They get so frustrated, they start doing the same thing. They start cutting themselves, kind of to invoke the God, like, we'll do anything just so you answer our prayer. This man is doing this. He's um, kind of been banished. He's, He's in a real sorry state. And Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher, says this about this story. He says, it's one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. I mean, he's the epitome of hopelessness. No one can help him. He can't help himself. No one wants to have anything to do with him. What's going to happen? He needs God's help, God's intervention. Now, we probably all know people who are hopeless, people in our family, friends that, you know, maybe they've made some bad decisions. They're reaping the consequences. You know, we feel for them, but they've they've got a difficult situation. We don't know what they can do, or maybe they know what they can do, but they just don't do it. So it's a difficult situation here. And I can think of one of my colleagues, Davor, who's from Croatia, who's with Crew. And um, when he was growing up, he's in a difficult family situation. His dad was an alcoholic, beat his mother, terrorized his children. So as a result, Davor and his brother don't want to have anything to do with his dad. They get involved in stealing and um, drugs and sex, all sorts of wild things, they figure we're just going to be as bad as we can be because we know we can't be good. Well, Davor one day on the bus meets an American missionary from Crew, and he gets to know this guy. They start talking, and Davor's a little attracted to him because he's talking about the love of God. So Davor meets with him for three weeks. But Davor kind of wants to test this guy. So he starts being a real real pain. He's trying to be skeptical. He's trying to make it really difficult for guys. Like, prove to me that, you know, this God you believe in is real. Well, eventually, Davor does believe. He sees that this guy has a true faith, and so he puts his faith in Christ, too. So seeing his life transformed, Davor says, you know, my dad is really in need. And his dad was in the hospital at the time. He's being hospitalized for his alcoholism. Davor goes to talk to him, and people say, Davor, don't waste your time. Your dad, it's, it's, he's too far gone. He's not going to listen to you. Dalver still goes to him. He reads to him from the Bible. He prays for him. And he does this like for weeks in a row. His dad finally gives his life to Christ. So his dad stops drinking. He goes home. He apologizes for what he does. He gets a job. And then he even goes to his old drinking buddies and tells them about Christ. It's precisely this kind of person that Jesus is going to here in, the, in um, the Decapolis. And I don't think his going is coincidental. He knows about this person. And even for this one person, Jesus is willing to go 
and share his love and the transforming grace for this man's life. So we have, that's the brief description of the situation. Now we're going to see some power that is displayed. So as the boat comes from Capernaum, the man is out there watching. It says he sees from afar. And I think he knows who is on this boat, what kind of person is coming to his shore. And so when Jesus walks off, the man runs up, bows down before him. And the word here is worship. We go, wait, how can a demon worship God? But in James 2.19, it says, you believe God is one. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So he's not worshiping in a reverent way, in a faithful way, but the demon realizes the authority of God. And I know this is the 21st century. We don't often talk about demons. We think, well, that's from ancient times. But a number of years ago, I went to a seminary course. It was on spiritual warfare. Quite interesting because there were different missionaries there talking about their experiences in the world, about encounters they had had that not they were seeking out, but just happened to them. And even it reminded me of an encounter that Debbie had. We were living in Austria at the time, and she was going to language school in Vienna. So I was back in Linz. She's living in a dorm there, and she met these girls, and one of them happened to be kind of like a witch. And her other friends knew that Debbie was a believer, and they said, well, who's stronger, this girl or Debbie's? And so this, this woman put a, a spell on Debbie. And so when Debbie was sleeping the night, she kind of felt a little uneasy, but she claimed God's power. The next morning she gets up and everyone's watching. What is Debbie going to be like? Who has won this battle? And Debbie's just normal. And they realized this girl did not have any power over Debbie. And so we read here an account of demons, which I think even today in our world, they are still present. Jesus encounters demons. He doesn't go seeking them out, but often he goes somewhere and they fall at his feet and they say things like, you are the son of God. And Jesus has to say, be quiet. That's not for public consumption. This situation, it's a little different. He lets the man do that. He lets the man speak. The man to whom people normally don't go. They've written him off. They've left him alone. But now Jesus listens to this man. Now think about myself when I ever get into a context with people that are hopeless or in difficult situations. When sometimes at our church in Budapest, people come there and I go, oh, this is a person, maybe he's homeless. And I think, do I want to find out about this person? Do I care about their situation? Uh, and I have to ask myself, do I have compassion? Am I even willing to pray for them? Or do I just hope that they don't talk to me? Or do I have a heart for them? Because it seems Jesus has a heart for people like this. So, and Jesus has this heart because it says he came to seek that which was lost. He's willing to put up with inconvenience, with things that aren't comfortable, the things, people that maybe that aren't his favorite people, but people because God loves them and made them in his image. He says, I will be with them. I will spend time and love them because God loves them. So this man talks to Jesus. He says, what business do you have with me, son of the most high God? The beginning of Mark, it, it talks um, about this is the gospel from the Son of God. And that's a term Jesus usually didn't use on his own. He talked to himself about himself as the Son of Man. But here, the demon knows exactly who he is, the Son of the Most High God. But basically, he's saying, um, 
you're interfering with me. Stay out of my life. Leave me alone. Because he realizes the authority here. In Mark 1.27, the Pharisees saw Jesus casting out demons. They said, oh, he does that through, through Beelzebub, through the devil. That's how he does it. And Jesus says, that's illogical. And he gives us the story about, you know, if someone is a strong man in, in a house, if you want to get the strong man out, you have to be yet even stronger. And that's what Jesus is here. Jesus has bound the strong man. Jesus has bound the demons. He's not afraid of them. They have no power over him. But the demon is afraid of what can happen to him. Very interesting. The demon knows that one day he will be tormented forever. But he's saying, I don't want that to happen now. It shouldn't be premature, not before the appointed time. And that's what he's asking Jesus to do, to wait. So Jesus goes ahead and asks him his name. Now, the name is not just a name like Jim or Bob or Susan, but it's about the nature, the essence of a person. He's finding out what this person is really like, who is in this person. And he, in ancient times, we have papyri that talked about magic formulas and things, and they would often talk about that if you could know the name of a person, you would seemingly have power over them. And this, what the man says is legion. When you think of a Roman legion, that's 6,000 soldiers. Now, I don't think it's necessarily 6,000 demons here, but what it shows, it's not just one demon. It's a whole army of demons. And this fits into what Jesus has been talking about. He talks about the kingdom of God has come. I have come. I have brought the kingdom of God. And he realizes as he speaks parables to people some people believe, like the, the, the parable of the sower and the seed. Some places there's good ground. Some other times there's thorny or there's rocky ground. Some people resist the message of Jesus. And he realizes this. So these demons implore Jesus to not just cast them out, but to cast them into the pigs. And some say, well, maybe it's because there's, you know, territorial spirits here that they need to be in this specific area. The Bible never says anything about this. Uh, we really don't know. But for some reason, they want to go into the pigs. Now, Jesus gives permission. This is very interesting. You would think when a, a student at school, when maybe he asks his teacher if he can hand his homework in late, realizes the teacher has the power, she could give me permission. Or someone asks their boss, can I get a day off work? And the boss says, okay, he grants permission. The same with Jesus. The demon recognizes him as having authority, so he asks for his permission, even though the demon is totally against him. And so 2,000 pigs go and drown, and we say that's, that's tragic. Especially if you're from Eastern Europe, you think all the sausages they could have made out of 2,000 pigs. But they didn't ask. But what's really sad here is not so much the pigs, as, as sad as that is, but what these demons, what they did to the pigs, they were intending to do to the man, that they were going to cause destruction and death. John 10.10, 10, we know the, the second part, that Jesus came to, to give them life, that they could have it abundantly. Well, the first part says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what they wanted to do with this man, and that's what they did with the pigs. Which is also almost ironic here is that Jesus has his power, but it's in a 
you could almost say a subdued way. It isn't flashy. It isn't extravagant. He says the word and this demon's going to the pigs. He doesn't have to fight. It's not like as you see some movies, it's a great you know, physical battle. It's a battle that Jesus has won and the demons know it. They know they, it's no contest that Jesus has the strength. He has the power. And this is encouraging for us to know that as well. So there's a display of power which Jesus overwhelmingly wins in a, in a firm and decisive way. But then the people react to this. They see what has happened. The herdsmen know all of a sudden those pigs are gone. No job for them. They run into the city. What are they going to tell their bosses? Uh, somebody said, well, the good news is the pigs are all together. They're all in the same place. Just don't ask where they're at, okay? You won't believe it. So they run back. They come back with other people. And remember that man who was naked, yelling, gashing himself, uncontrollable? He's sitting there, clothed in his right mind. And they should look at him and say, how did this happen? We've never seen this before. No one could ever do anything to him. And now, and you would think they'd say, and Jesus is here and this man. But they're a little more concerned about the pigs, about their livelihood, about, about the, the strength of this Jesus. It's like the, the parable, the, the sower and the seed, that in some places there's thorns. And where the seed goes there, it's choked out by the thorns, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And that's somehow with these people, there's a fear there, all they can think about what they lost and not that if Jesus could transform this man, maybe he could do it in our lives as well. But they don't come to that thought. So there's one reaction. And they ask Jesus, Jesus, we beg you, leave us. Go away from us. But one man wants to stay with him. And that's the man who's been changed. So there's two reactions. Very different. And that's the way it is with the kingdom of God. And there is a spiritual battle going on here. So this takes us to the proclamation of God's deeds and mercy. And we see Jesus getting into the boat. And that the man, he says this to the man, and he says, and he, the man begged that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to pro proclaim the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Think about this. We've had three requests in the story. The first one, the demons requested Jesus to send them out, not just into the countryside, but into the pigs. Jesus grants that request. Second request, the people in the town say, leave us, go away from here. Now, Jesus, having all authority and power, said, you saw what I did to the pigs, I'm staying. Who are you to tell me what to do? But he grants their request. So the third person, the man who's, who's been been. Uh, sent out, the demons sent out of him. He asked to stay with Jesus. And Jesus says, no. We go, no, why would Jesus turn him down? How could he do this? Especially when you think about this, when Jesus called the disciples, he's up on the mountain praying, he comes down, he calls 12 to be with him. In Mark 3, 14, it says, so that they might be with him and, they, and he might send them out to preach and cast out demons. He wants to be with him. And Jesus says, no. I think it's more, it's not at this time. It's not that Jesus didn't want her to be with them. 
What Jesus did want him to do was to go and to preach to others. Now this is, is very, it's fascinating. Sometimes I get in conversations with people about the Lord and about the gospel and I think, you know, but if they could just see Jesus, if they could just be with him, they would believe. Well, in this situation, it's totally different. These people in the town, they see Jesus, but they say, go away from here. We don't want anything to do with you. But Jesus knows that they know the man. And if they consider his story, how he was and now how he is, this will say volumes to them. You think about this man too. He's being left behind. How much experience does he have? What's his, you know, his Bible background? Been to seminary, Bible school? Do you have a strategy? What are you going to do? He has none of that. Jesus just says, go tell him what I did to you. That's it. But that was enough. And Jesus is using an unbelievable person, a person we would never consider to start a mission. He's often considered the first Gentile missionary. So he goes to Decapolis, and it says the people are amazed at him. This is a word that's used in the, the Gospel of Mark about eight times. People are often amazed at Jesus' teaching, his healing, casting out of demons. They are amazed. It's, it's not normal. It's not typical. God's doing some great things. What's interesting, though, is that Jesus does not leave this man alone. He is going to go back to the Decapolis in chapter 7. He will do miracles there. They will follow up. And so Jesus has started uh, to work initially through this man, and he will come back. Now, remember, we started out talking about a trip with a purpose, about our family going to this chocolate factory in Showprome. And we've been listening to something far more important than just chocolate, about a trip to a man who was hopeless and how Jesus and his power transformed this person. So we also asked the question when we were looking at God's power and his mercy transforming people of why Jesus went to this place. And I think there's different reasons here. First off, it has to do with this man, that there's a single person there that God cared about, that God loved, that God knew in his need of what he needed and that only that Jesus could provide the answer for him. That he was helpless, but he needed a divine intervention. This reminds me of a couple weeks ago, Debbie had some relatives who were visiting us in Budapest, people that I'd never met. And the one man had been very successful, corporate lawyer, made all sorts of money, but he was looking back in his life and he realized he had become an alcoholic his daughter had become an alcoholic and died of it. Two other children were involved in it. He could look at the success, the money, and say, but I lost my family. Was it worth it? Now, he had stopped drinking it, and it was interesting. He was talking to us about spiritual things. He was very much interested, and he realized he'd, that God had been working in his life. And to talk to him about what God wanted to do and to assure him what God could yet further do in his life. And this, this one person, and we thought the opportunity we had to share with this man that we had, had never met, had no idea about his background, that he's opening up what, about his hurts and about what God was starting to do. So Jesus went there because of one man, of one person. But he also went to the Decapolis because for all peoples, for the Gentiles. And Isaiah, there's a prediction given says, behold, my servant whom I have chosen will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
This is what the Savior will do. The Jews are supposed to be a light to other peoples. And up until this time, that hadn't really happened. We'll see this later on with the the disciples. They're called to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus has already given them an example of what they should be doing. And this man, unlikely as he may seem, he's the start of it. And this is something we've seen in Eastern Europe. You know, 1989, the wall went down. A lot of countries got religious freedom. And you could hear the gospel being preached for the first time. Now, one very unlikely country was that of Albania. And it was a country that prided itself, prided itself on being totally atheistic. In fact, they had Russian communists there. They had Chinese communists there. They kicked out both groups because they thought both were too liberal. They said, no, you guys aren't atheistic enough. We're going to do it our way. No churches, no mosques, nothing. If you keep in mind, too, this was formerly a Muslim country, about 75% of the people. Today, this is one of the most spiritually open countries in Eastern Europe. We have over 100 staff with crew. Many churches have been started. Many believers have come to faith, uh, whether through student ministries, executive ministries. We're seeing missionaries being sent to Turkey, to Bosnia. You would have never imagined that Albania, even today, a a culturally Muslim country would be sending missionaries. But they too realize it's not just for one person, but it's for their country, but for all countries, that God wants to reach out. And so God was using through this one man to reach these Gentiles. Not just one man, not just the disciples, but also for, for the peoples, but for the disciples. Remember they came, they're in the boat, and they says, who is this? that even the winds and the sea obey. Who is this that even a legion of demons is driven out? They are seeing Christ as he is, the power. They're gonna need need to know this power because Jesus will one day ascend into heaven and his power will be in them as they go out in spiritual battle and they go out to tell people about the transforming grace of Christ. And finally, Jesus also come for us. Tim Keller says, Though we are not tortured by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. Now, I imagine most of us have not had an experience like the man in this story. But if we're people, if we're sinners, if we're separated from God, we're just like him, naked, running around, screaming with no hope, no way to reach God on our own. We're separated apart from the grace of God. And in this sense, we all need Jesus. We may not have done you know, awful things. We may have never murdered anyone. But we know, and as I think about my past, about the thoughts I had, the trouble I have in following God's love, the trouble I have just in loving people, that I need salvation. I need someone to to help me, to liberate me from my sin. And that's the great part about this, that God wants to do this for all of us. And that through his grace, he can transform us. So finally, some questions to consider. One, how has Jesus' power and mercy transformed you? You can think back maybe to your story of faith, what God did. It may not be as exciting as Davor's or this man's, But if God has delivered you out of the kingdom of darkness, he's done something significant. Or maybe it's something just every day you see God working in your life, answering a prayer, 
bringing someone to your life to encourage you. And you know, this is not just a coincidence. It's God working. And then also, how can I share that with people? Maybe it's telling them that story. Maybe it's just sharing my everyday life, them seeing my life and what God does and that it makes a difference that I believe in Jesus Christ. And finally, how can you pray for someone that's in a hopeless situation? I think we probably all know people, maybe in our family, someone else that, you know, they know, we've talked to them many times of what they should do, but they just can't seem to do it. Or we've prayed for them and we don't know what else we could tell them. And we're about to give up. But we realize, but God can still work in their hearts. Just recently, I've talked to a few people. They said, you know, I had this relative, and for years I was praying for him. And I was, you know, I thought, what can I do? They know everything I could say. And then finally, God breaks through and opens their heart up. So as Jesus said to the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your power and your mercy, that you don't run over us, that you want us to believe in you, that you give us grace to transform us. No matter how desperate we are, your grace and power are big enough to cause us to walk with you, to change our lives. Help us also to keep praying for others, not to give up on them, to, to believe not so much in them, but to believe in the power that it's in you that can transform their lives. Thank you that there is no greater power on heaven and earth. And in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website, at www.carmelprez.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.